According to a 2001 White House study, the wealthiest 400 billionaire families in the United States paid an average, get this, federal individual tax rate of just 8.2%. For comparison, the average American taxpayer in the same year paid 13%, almost 5% higher. So what do the rich know that most of us don't? For one, the rich are proactive tax planners. Me and you, we're reactive when it comes to our taxes. We pay after the fact when there's so much we could have done ahead of time to help us keep more money in our pockets. Feel bad? You probably do, but don't. I'm here to help you, okay? We sat with Elliot Pepper, who's got a heck of a lot of initials after his name. Check him out on LinkedIn. He helps people plan their financial futures through actionable and proactive tax planning and preparation. Yes, he's a total numbers nerd. You're going to love him, but he's our favorite kind of nerd. He knows how to make things interesting. This episode of Kosher Money is all about taxes, but it's anything but boring. It's informative, fun. We had a great time. In other words, this is one of the best investments you'll ever make. Enjoy. Being a Jew, awesome. Managing personal finances, not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. An entire episode on taxes. Boring. No, it's not. Elliot Pepper came in from the D.C. area. We're going to do a taxes episode. I'm here. I came up for it. I'm CPA? CPA okay, and good. CFP. I did not look into his credentials. So we're going in. No, he's, he's great. You're a real influencer. I see you quoted in Fox News, Wall Street Journal. So you've convinced a larger amount of people than just me that you seem to know what you're talking about. So this is going to be a little bit different. Okay. We're going to make this fun. I wanted to do, you know, that podcast where they have hot peppers, where they eat them and have a conversation. I figured we would do that and people would be more into it. They would say, oh, wow, they're doing something a bit crazy, but I don't think we need that because we're going to keep it fun. Okay. Make taxes great again. That's going to be- Were they ever great? That's <laughs> so, so tax planning, I want to get right into it. And by the way, if I ever get bored during any of your answers, I'm going to tell you I'm bored and we're moving to the next thing. It won't be the first time, Ellie. Oh, and really? it won't be the last. <laughs> Today, at least. <laughs> okay. So I got six, seven pages of tax-related questions. The first one is, I want, I want to start more holistically on taxes. If people approach taxes differently than a robot, right? They're being strategic about it. Can people legitimately, everyday people, can they save potentially thousands of dollars if they do it one way versus the other? The short answer is yes, but like with so many things in life, it depends. So when you're talking about taxes, the way I think about it is just to frame it within the context of a game. And the game is to create the difference between how much you make and then what you end up paying Uncle Sam to make that as wide as possible. So make the most amount of money, pay Uncle Sam the least amount of money. So like any game, you have, say, a board game, you have your own board that you're going to play with. So is are there things that people can do in order to play this game efficiently? The answer is yes, but you have to realize the game that you're playing is not the same game that I'm playing. And I think that's really, really important for people. So you typically will build your board based on, well, how do you make money? 
And what's your personal family situation? So are you W-2 employee? Do you have your own business? Are you in partnership with somebody? Are you married? Do you have children? Once you kind of have your setup, then you have your game. Then what are the tools to win the game? Well, you measure your success for this game and you can dive into so many specific areas, but really it comes down to three things. There are adjustments. How are you going to adjust down your income? There are deductions. When people say, oh, write-off. Oh, I wrote off my car in the parking lot. I see that? My accountant told me it was a write-off, right? Deductions. And then credits. Credits come in at the end of the day and say, okay, these are the taxes that you owe, but ah, we're going to give you a credit and take some of that money off. So those are your three tools that you're going to use to try to win the game. What does Uncle Sam say about these three tools? Does he hate them? If we got Uncle Sam on the phone right now, I looked up on Google, IRS. No one actively calls the IRS just to schmooze, but we're going to call them. And I say to them, hey, Sammy, adjustments, deductions, credits, legal, probably, yeah, it sounds like it's legal, right? And everything we're talking here is legal. Do they get upset? Are they annoyed? Do they not want people tapping into this? Or the world is yours to conquer. Don't be lazy. Go after it. Uncle Sam approves. Yeah, absolutely. So Certainly, obviously, everything that you're, when you're discussing these tools that you're going to use, you're doing them legally. Where did they come from? Well, the government created them. Really kind of psychological thing to keep in your mind when you're plotting out your tax game and how you're going to win is that the government creates tax rules and tax policy that is intended to incentivize certain behaviors. So you constantly hear about business owners having a lot of tax write-offs because the government wants to incentivize entrepreneurship, grow the economy. You'll hear about, oh, I should put money into my 401k because I'll save in taxes. Well, okay, what is that? Why does it make sense? The government wants to incentivize people to save for their future. So this is one thing, actually, when I first graduated college, Story alert. My, I, we love stories. So anytime a tax guy has a story, I'm in. Go. I got stories. So I first got, I graduated college and I was, you know, I was really excited. I'm like, whoa, accounting taxes. This is amazing. Doesn't the whole world love this? I was ready to go out oh, there yeah. and change the world with my tax knowledge. What I learned very, very quickly was that A, most people are normal and don't have the passion of taxes that people like me have. But then also I realized I was very good at understanding the rules and then being very reactive, which is I think a place that a lot of people find themselves in during tax season. Because think about what we're at the end of January right now. So we're, it's it's tax season, right? You watch football games now, it's all TurboTax commercials coming at you left and right. But if you think about it, everyone's now worried about their taxes for the year that has already passed. So what I quickly learned to realize in my career was the value of not being reactive in your relationship with taxes, but being proactive. And when I went back to graduate school, I got a master's as if a degree in accounting wasn't nerdy enough. I'm going to one-up you. I got a master's degree in taxation also. That's, I think, a certification in nerdiness. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's Dr. Nerd, right? Nerd alert. Nerd alert. So You're not a doctor though, right? No, but with my last name. Dr. P. So, okay, full disclosure. We're laying it all out here on the podcast. I teach a high school finance course and my students will sometimes refer to me as Dr. Pepper and I don't always correct them. Okay. I lean into it. Good. So we have the branding. You're a complete nerd. I think our first complete nerd, but- 
I think it works to your benefit, right? People don't. No one wants a cool accountant, right? <laughs> I mean, you're not you're not a, an actual nerd for those watching on on video. They get that, but they want someone who's intelligent and proactive. And I think that's where you're going with this. Yeah, exactly. So what I realized was the importance. So when I was getting my master's, this was actually through a tax law program, and I I'll still remember. Um, the first few classes, the professors were saying like, okay, all you accountants, you know how to fill out a tax form. That's really great. That all happens after the year's over. What your clients are going to care about, they're going to care about during the year. What can you do? How can we play this game properly? So understanding what the intent of Congress and the president, the government, when these laws are passed, what the congressional intent was, that is a complete game changer. And for me, it totally changed my perspective and the approach that I have to my career was this ability to realize that, hey, all these laws are in place. And there's all these people talk about, you know, 529s and Roth IRAs, and there's all these acronyms, SEP IRA and, you know, depreciation, like, like all these, all these different things. They all come from a law that was passed by the government. And anytime the government's doing something like that, they're trying to effectuate a policy and they use tax policy to try to incentivize us to behave a certain way. Once you understand where that person's coming from, same is true in relationships. You understand like, okay, so I see where you're coming from. Let me try to maximize the relationship that we're going to have together. Same thing applies with your tax relationship. So understand the rules, understand what the government's trying to get at, apply it to your life, whether you're an employee, have your own business, whether you're married, single, bunch of kids, no kids, retired, not, whatever your circumstances are, trust me, there is a tax planning strategy that you can implement for yourself. Love that. And I feel the wealthy do it really well. Obviously, they have a lot more to lose or gain. And they, you know, I would say most, I'm sure there are some wealthy people out there that have no clue, just file their taxes using TurboTax or something like that. But for the most part, they understand it and they're proactive. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's fair to say. And I think a lot of people who do kind of realize that it makes sense for me to be proactive is here's here's a little fun fact all right nerd alert number two you think about all the expenses that you're going to have in life i would state very very confidently that personal income taxes are one of if not the single biggest expense that you will pay over the course of your lifetime right think about all that you're going to pay in mortgage payments on your house car payments clothes vacations income tax is a huge personal expense. So even though not everyone's a nerd and we might not like to have to deal with it, um, it is an important part of your personal finances. So I think as people's income grows, they start to realize, hey, your first job out of college and you just had a W-2 and maybe you got a nice refund, you went on TurboTax and whoa, I'm, the government's paying me. Well, they're not really paying you. You just had too much taken out of your paycheck during the year and you're getting paid back what you owed. But as life gets more complicated, your income starts to go up, the consequences of your tax planning become a lot bigger because it's one thing to save on taxes when you're paying you know, maybe 10% all in. It's another thing when you're paying 30, 40%. And you, know, you live in places, Jersey, New York, where I'm from in Maryland, there's state taxes as well. So the stakes get higher as life gets more complicated. So I think that 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 correlation is very true whereas kind of things get a little bit more intense with you personally and professionally, the numbers get higher, 
the need to be smarter with your taxes definitely continues to grow. I am reactive. I think I'm in the majority, right? I find out, oh, had I done this, I could have saved. Oh, I wasn't paying into this during the year. So there's a penalty. Oh, I'm late there. Oh, I didn't realize. And then I'll get emails from all these different accountants and tax firms and and they say, hey, did you know you could have applied for this credit? And I'm not up to date. I don't know. I have an accountant like everyone else does who may or may not be proactive or as proactive as is best for me. What do I need to do to change that? Is it calling up people who are accountants and saying, hi, are you a proactive accountant or reactive? Are they upfront about that? Is it calling up a friend and saying, hey, who do you use? Are you happy? How much did you save? They, they might not even know what being proactive is all about. Most people aren't accountants. They don't know the terms and what they should be on the lookout for. And these things are always changing, right? There are new laws that are coming up and that's your job. That's your that's the accountant's job to be proactive. Am I not even talking about an accountant? I'm talking about a tax specialist, right? Where do I go? And the people listening, people are, are, are putting their ear closer to their car uh, speaker right now or the, the, the radio and they're saying, okay, Dr. P., Give it to me. Tell me, what what do I do? I want to be better. And we're going to get into the nitty gritty of this where it's going to be a little bit more boring than us talking about this generally, but I want to be better. What should I do? And I don't think you have the capacity to take on 750 new clients overnight. So give it to us. I think the accounting industry, the accounting profession in general, we do ourselves a big disservice where we build up. The same thing happened when I started my own practice is that we immediately start off and we kind of pitch it as like, oh, you need a tax guy? I'm your guy. And the natural thought is like, okay, so when it's tax time, which is now after the year has ended, that's where the relationship starts from. This is what people need to do. Just like anything in the world that you want to make sure you're doing it correctly, efficiently, is you have to adopt a mindset that says, I want to be concerned about my taxes before December 31st of the calendar year. That is the new paradigm. You no longer think about taxes when you're seeing the TurboTax and H&R Block ads on TV. You're thinking about it beforehand. That's a mind shift that people need to have. I would encourage people to, first off, definitely solicit your own network. If you've got a friend working with a guy, working with a guy, the first question to ask a prospective accountant or tax advisor that you're going to be working with is to say, hey, I know you can do taxes. I know you can. I don't question that. What are you going to do for me from a planning standpoint and say, what are your services for tax planning and what do you charge for them? What am I going to get out of it? I think that is really, most people kind of say, well, I'll start off and you'll do my taxes and then we'll see how it goes. And then maybe I'll reach out to you in the summer to do tax planning. I can tell you from one stressed out CPA going into tax season, what typically happens is I say, oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do that. And then what's going to happen? I'm going to be really frazzled going through tax season. I'm going to push to get your return done. And then the last thing I'm going to want to do in the summer is get on the phone with you and start talking about, oh, well, here's some tax planning things and proactive strategies that you can do. So if you find a professional who, and and because it's a service, you can and should be paying for it, who says, hey, part of what you're signing up for is almost a separate engagement for us to do tax planning, that is huge. One more thing I'll say on for people kind of thinking about this and soliciting a professional is I'm not going to lie. 
a lot of people, TurboTax, H&R Block, any sort of online tax preparation software, it does the trick. Most W-2 um, people can prepare their taxes very cost-effectively online using one of these services, but they won't get the tax planning out of it. There are many financial planning, financial advisors out there, and there are certainly many that are also either CPAs or they include comprehensive tax planning in the services that they're offering. And so I say, even if you're not going to go and say, well, yeah, I don't really need a CPA. I know I could do this, but like, there must be things that I'm missing. Like every year I owe and there's a penalty. Like what, what, like what is, like TurboTax isn't going to give you the solution for that. So kind of looking a little bit more broadly and thinking about your relationship with taxes more within your personal financial planning situation is kind of a good way to think about it. And the, you know, the last thing I'll say is you made a really good point. Tax laws is always changing. In fact, right now there is a pending bill in Congress that might make some retroactive changes. So as if taxes weren't complicated enough, there might be a bill that passed, to my knowledge, it still hasn't passed yet, that could impact the taxes that I'm working on right now for last year. So accepting the fact that it's super complicated is is a reality. But I encourage people, subscribe to Kosher Money, other podcasts, financial podcasts out there. There are people who throw ideas out there and things for you to be able to think about. But bridging that gap between planning and implementation that is, for many things in life, especially for tax planning, can be very, very hard for people. So I encourage you, get yourself educated, but it can be very, very worthwhile finding a professional where you're upfront and what we're doing together. I'm paying you for planning to help close that gap between what my plan should be and then actually implementing on it. A quick break to tell you about our sponsor, H&R Block. No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> so let's get into some of it. We'll stay high level while we go through a few different terms. You mentioned W-2. A W-2, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's for an employee, Correct. right? That means you are filing at the end of the year as a W-2 employee. I recently came across a W-9. W-9 is for a business? Uh, mostly A correct. vendor. Yeah, this, I actually had a client call and we were kept talking and the client kept saying, um, I needed their W-2. They kept referring to a W-9. And what I found out from that conversation was that they weren't an employee at all. They were right. actually a contractor. Contractor. W-9, if your income shows up, you're not an employee and you don't get a W-2, but you're working, that means that you are more likely than not getting a 1099 and that in the eyes of the government, you're a business owner. No one's responsible. No one's taking out the taxes for you. That's on you. The W-9 is the form that the person paying you is going to ask for you to fill out so that you can identify yourself so that they can issue you the 1099. So when you're W-2, you fill out what's called a W-4. That's the form that tells your employer, hey, this is my name, my address, and how much you should be taking out for taxes. Mm -hmm. When you're a contractor, you're asked to fill out a W-9, which is a much simpler form where you just identify yourself, and then the person paying you or the business paying you will give you a 1099, and they're not taking out any of the taxes. Right. Which is nice until you realize you have to pay taxes on that at some point, right? Yeah, yeah. People forget that. A short break from this week's episode. I am, yes, rocking my Twillery vest. I got my long sleeve polo. That's what I do. More and more first-time customers. I think over 1,000 people have purchased a Twillery product as a result 
of our custom promo for first-time users. Visit twillery.com slash kosher money. Use promo code CHAI, C-H-A-I. It stands for 18. Get $18 off your first purchase of $139 or more. Someone just reached out to me today. He took advantage of the code, and then he went back and ordered more. I think he ordered seven shirts. Now, these shirts are not the cheapest. I, if you're looking for the cheapest shirt online, go to Google, type in cheapest shirt online. And I don't think Twillery is going to show up. That's because it's not cheap. It lasts. It has durability. And like I always say, if you're not in the market for a beautiful vest, a uh, long-lasting, comfortable shirt, short sleeve, long sleeve, they have these ear blazers I'm going to show you in a subsequent episode, then don't purchase Twillery, okay? It's meant to last. It's meant to be there for the long run. So there are cheaper shirts out there that may not last as long and may not be as comfortable. So you got to sort of balance the two, no different than how we approach other things. So if you're not in the market or cannot uh, make that happen right now, no pressure, just skip this ad and move on. And that's okay. And no shame in that. Okay, cool. Twillery.com slash kosher money. Links in the show notes. I really like this vest. I wear it. Sometimes it zips. Sometimes it's not. Depends on the day. I like the days where I don't have to wear the coat, although I do have a coat from them. I'm a paid spokesman. So yeah, but I like the coat. I like the vest. Sometimes I wear them both if it's really cold. Um, but I just like the the ability to be free. It's A vest is cool because it's a coat without sleeves. I don't know if that's the official definition. Okay, I'm talking too much. I think they pay for like 60 seconds, but this is way over 60 seconds. So, you know, free airtime. Okay, back to this week's episode. So when you are filling out a W-9, does that mean that you officially own a business, that you have an LLC, an S-Corp, a C-Corp, a nonprofit, or not necessarily? You can fill out a W-9 as a contractor without having a full-fledged business in some directory somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to have a legal entity in order to be someone who might be asked to fill out a W-9 and then therefore be someone who is essentially a business owner. In the eyes of the IRS, there's a term called sole proprietor. So a sole proprietor is someone who just, if I just say, you know, I want to go out and I'm going to go out, what's Broadway out here? I'm going to go out and I'm going to start selling flowers on Broadway on Arab Shabbos, right? I'm going to, I'm going to start making money from that. So income that I earn from that, in the eyes of the IRS, that's a business. I'm, I'm not getting a W-2. No one's issuing me a W-2. That might be a bad example because I'm not sure exactly how my 1099 will come to me. But even though I haven't gone through the steps of setting up an LLC or an entity, I'm still in business in the eyes of the government. So yeah, you, you could get a 1099 and be asked to fill out a W-9 even without having that legal entity. You think that that florist out on Broadway is making a mistake? They should set up an LLC? And this is where I think tax planning like really hits its stride for people who have their own business. A common misconception that I find, and I've had, I can't count how many Instagram reels, TikToks, YouTube shorts that have been forwarded to me from clients or friends saying, hey, this person on TikTok's flying on a private jet and they claim to be worth $20 billion. And they said that all they did was open up an LLC, buy a Maserati, put their entire family on payroll, and all of a sudden they're worth $20 billion. So there's all this noise out there, I think, 
in social media and the world in general about like, you know, quick and easy ways to save on taxes, just like there's no quick and easy way to riches. And people find that out in the investment world when they get burned on schemes and things like that. Taxes work the same way. So it's important to realize that, yes, there are rules. We discuss that. The government creates them, wants us to act a certain way. Um, but you have to play by the rules and you have to use them appropriately. So when it comes to having your own business, an important I think to keep in mind is, again, the IRS does not care if you have an LLC, a corporation, or nothing at all. If you're making money, you're in business and you're subject to tax on that income. So once you start collecting your first dollar, boom, you're in business. It's advisable for someone if someone starts off and you know, a lot of people start off as a side hustle. They might be selling stuff online or they're still a W-2 employee. They're not sure if this is going to work out. Some people go all in. Either way, it would make sense, certainly if it's a side hustle, maybe not immediately, but eventually to consider forming an LLC, which in the eyes of the IRS means nothing initially. It means absolutely nothing. All you're doing is you're creating a legal shield. LLC stands for Limited Liability Company. It's something that's filed in a state. You have to find a state. A lot of people do it in the state that they live in. They form an LLC and they conduct business through the LLC. And it provides you a certain amount of legal protection. So we have an, a small business attorney on here to discuss all that. Uh, they can get into the details, but there's benefit to kind of protecting your personal assets, your personal life from your business life. So you do that. What's interesting is if you don't have any partners and you go and you form an LLC, the IRS immediately considers you, unless you unless you make some tax structure changes, considers you what's called a disregarded entity. So even, even in the government's eyes, that LLC means nothing. It's disregarded, right? All they care about is you personally. So forming an LLC is important initially for legal purposes. When does it become beneficial for tax purposes? That's when your business starts to grow and the idea of, well, how do I want to tax my business? Because in the United States, we have both corporate tax system, we have a personal tax system, and then we kind of have this hybrid system of what's called a pass-through entity. So a lot of times you'll hear, oh, I formed an LLC and my accountant told me to become an S-corp, so I made an S-corp. Well, what you probably did was you formed an LLC and then you elected to be taxed as an S-Corp. You told the IRS, hey, IRS, I'm not disregarded anymore. I want to be an S-Corp. And that's a great tax planning strategy for a lot of businesses. But again, it has to make sense for your, for your situation. What, what's, what's the tax benefit there? So there's a lot of details. And I'd be curious how many accountants are going to watch this and going to hit me up. Oh, but you didn't think about that. <laughs> All right. But the S-Corp, it is at a basic level, when you earn income, whether you're an employee or 1099, you're subject to social security taxes, Medicare taxes, and income taxes, okay? So those are the big three taxes that the federal government's coming at you for. When you are, and it doesn't matter, that's what you pay on your earned income. So a tax planning strategy that exists is the S-Corp comes in and it takes your LLC and it kind of separates you, the owner, from you, the person who works in the business as an employee, and what you're able to do is you're able to, once you've made that S corporation, the IRS now says, oh, there's actually two things going on here. There's Ellie, the uh, S corp owner, and there's Ellie who works in this S corp. As someone who works in it, you put yourself on payroll as an employee. 
and the income that you pay yourself is subject to the big three, social security, Medicare, and income taxes. But the beauty is that any profits remaining after what you don't pay yourself can escape social security and Medicare taxes. So you're only subject to the income tax. So simple example, someone makes 100 grand a year. If you're a W-2 employee, you're paying all the taxes on that, social security, Medicare, and income. If you are a sole proprietor getting a 1099 for 100 grand that year, you don't do any tax planning, you're paying all the taxes on it. Let's say you wanna do some tax planning. You take that LLC, convert it to an S-corp, and maybe you pay yourself a salary of, say, $50,000. Now, there is a concept called reasonable compensation. The IRS has a, has rules around this, but let's just go with this example. $50,000 is reasonable for Ellie's role as an employee in the business. The remaining $50,000 is not subject to Social Security and Medicare. So that fifty dollars you put yourself on payroll, you actually issue a W-2. Your LLC gives you a W-2. You put it on your personal return. It sounds like multiple steps, and it is and you'll pay Social Security and Medicare. What happens when the dust settles is that before you did tax planning, you were paying 6.2% Social Security, 1.45% Medicare taxes on the entire 100 grand of income. After you do the tax planning, you're only paying that on 50 grand. So does it make sense to form an LLC? Absolutely, primarily for legal protection. As your business grows and as income grows, the decision to then take that LLC and convert it to a different type of entity becomes important. And one example is the S-Corp and the benefits is we got to talk, man. I I got an LLC. I don't think I've done this S-Corp. I don't want to pay social and Medicare, uh, Medicaid, whatever that is. Um, Now, some of the accounts, I will say also, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if you have a demographic breakdown of, but New York and New Jersey, every state, different states will approach S-Corps differently. So yeah. you do have to kind of look at the state considerations. There's also something called a QBI deduction, which is set to sunset in 2025. So this might be the boring button time, but the point is there's a lot of complexity that goes into it. But, yeah. but I'm fundamentally, bored. you can I'm definitely bored. plan. No, we're moving on. We're moving on. Okay. Let's go to people who are employees, right? Mm-hmm. They're filling out the W-4. Yep. And it comes down to the withholdings, right? You have more kids, you save money and what numbers to put on. And you text your friend or your older brother and say, hey, how do I fill this out? What numbers to add? What should people take into account when they're filling out that W-4? And if they filled out a W-4, can they go back and edit it at a later date? Great questions. So, Well, you wrote these questions, so. There you go. <laughs> don't, don't give me so much credit. Lobbing me softball. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, right? I, I lob myself softballs. You know, the W-4 is not, it's it's a short form, but it is surprisingly complicated, even for accountants, because the instructions can be a little funky. It's painful to fill out. It's painful to fill out. If your situation is simple, just keep it simple. So if you are single and this is your only job, check the single box double check what they have on there, but you probably don't need to put anything else on there. Where it gets complicated is when you are married and there are multiple jobs and dependents on there. What I would say, a general approach to take is the more dependents that you claim, the less taxes that are going to be taken out of your paycheck. And so if you say, let's say you only have two kids, but you put on the W-4, well, hold on. 
if I put five kids, they're going to take less taxes out, so I'm going to win. Well, you're just going to get burned at tax time. Instead of maybe getting a refund, you're going to owe a lot more. So I I tell people in general, the big pitfalls tend to come up, in my experience, is when you have multiple jobs. So, and this is very common, especially in today's day and age, even for single people, certainly for married people, you got dual income. So it's very important to kind of take a look at the instructions and read through them. Practically speaking, a common, a common, if you're just going to like do this yourself, what, what I see happens a lot, the higher, if you're married, let's say married, both spouses work, one spouse makes more than the other. So the higher earning spouse will check married filing joint, will claim the dependents. The lower earning spouse will not claim any dependents um, and will oftentimes, sometimes if people especially like the idea of getting a refund, just check the single box, just have them take out more taxes. The problem is your employers, your employer and your spouse's employer, they don't talk to each other. Mm. So they don't know that you might make a hundred grand at your job, but they don't know that the Schwartz family in total makes 200 grand. So the withholding can get a little bit skewed. So that is kind of the way that I tell you to, to approach the W-4 from that standpoint. Your second question, the W-4 is not set in stone. You can always update and change it. All you need to do is reach out to your employer and say, hey, I got to update my withholdings because my accountant told me so. Blame me. Blame the accountant. Whatever it is, you can always update it. Blame it the should, nerd. It should blame the nerd. It should run through in the next payroll. That's good stuff. There's so many follow-up questions that I have, but I want to try to cover a lot and then let people pepper you with questions <laughs> later on. So we covered the LLC, the S-Corp, the establishment of how to create that and structure it. We covered the W-4. I want to try to get into the tax deductions and the credits, right? Um, I think that's a real something that can help people, I don't want to say save money, but keep more of their money, right? I think you brought this up before. The government's giving me money. Like, bro, that was your money to begin with. You just let them hold on to it. So question number one, wouldn't it be wise to claim as many deductions as possible, put that into a high yield savings account, let it grow. And then at the end, when you have to pay the taxes, pay them or pay them at the end of the year when there's no penalty. But keep the money for yourself, assuming you're responsible and you're not going to run to a casino and spend all your eventual tax money. Is there wisdom to that or that's a mistake? There's a degree of wisdom to it. And uh, tax people love like, you know, catchphrases and acronyms and stuff. There's something called the safe harbor rules. But what I would caution people on on that, because what you're saying logically makes sense. The problem is in the United States, we operate on a pay-as-you-earn rule, which means that the government expects you to be paying in your taxes throughout the year as you're earning income. So what would happen in that situation is you might be sitting on a lot of cash earning 4 or 5% in a high-yield account, but you're going to get smacked with what are called underpayment penalties uh -oh. and interest. The government is smart enough to realize that they need to make that penalty high enough that it's not worth it for you to just sit on that money in a savings account. So general rule, be aggressive in the sense that don't give the government money to hold on because you could be earning 4%. If you're just giving it to them, the government's going to be earning money and then they'll pay it back to you and they're not going to pay you interest. Right. But don't get too aggressive. You don't want to owe too much. There are certain thresholds where you'll actually be subject to penalties and interest if they're not taking enough out. What are some common deductions? People listening in the US, married, single, I don't know. We can start broad. We can get very specific. What are some of the common ones? And then what are some 
tax considerations people may not know of, but should push pause and call their accountant. Yeah, definitely. So let's so let's maybe discuss the most common deduction uh, structure in 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 the U.S. tax system, and that is what is referred to as itemized deductions. And it's even before we get into that, it's important to realize when it comes to filing your taxes, you're going to tell the government, this is what I made. And then you're going to reduce it potentially by some adjustments. And I think we'll talk about that after. Once you're there, you have what's called AGI, adjusted gross income. So this is an important number for a lot of tax credits, but you get your AGI. Then before you get to the taxable income, the amount that you actually have to calculate taxes on, you get to take your deductions. So step one is, am I going to be itemizing my deductions or am I going to be taking what's called the government standard deduction? So the government gives a freebie, basically says, even if you don't have any itemized deductions, we'll let you write off a certain amount on your taxes. Was it like 13,000? If you're single, uh, it's 13,850, I think. I think it's going up to 14,000 next year, 14,000 something. Married people, it's about 27, 28,000 dollars. That, by the way, is supposed to sunset after 2025. So those those standard deductions are set to basically get cut in half unless Congress extends the current tax code. And most people will be itemized. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, whereas now a lot of people don't, it's 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 possible that people start itemizing. Hold on. So itemized, you can even do as a W-2 or W-9? Yes, correct. Okay. Correct. Important, important point. Because that W-2, 1099 income that you're getting, that's the income. You might adjust it for some things to get to AGI. Then once you're at AGI, I now subtract either the standard or I'm going to itemize. And right now, there's there's really three big itemized categories. And there's one where you really have the most control over. Mm. So there are state and local taxes, so property taxes, state income taxes that you might pay to New York, Maryland, wherever. The interest that you pay on your mortgage, subject to some limits, but generally you got a mortgage. Every month you make a payment. Part of it goes to the principal. Part of it goes to interest. The amount that goes to interest you can potentially deduct. And then charity. Charity is the one, again, there are some limits, but they're very, very high limits. So there's a lot of planning that you can do around charity. Those are the big three. So if I make 100,000 and I give 10,000 to charity, they look at it as if I made 90,000. If you are itemizing. Itemizing, correct. But let's say in that situation, you give 10,000 to charity, but you don't have a mortgage. And let's say you only paid $3,000 in state taxes. That means that your total itemized deductions for that year are 13,000, charity plus state, but you have, let's say you're single, the standard deduction for you is $14,000. So you decide, you have to pick, you typically go with the higher. What's the higher one? I'll take the higher one. Maryland's actually an interesting state because sometimes you don't, but the way to think about it is, hey, is the sum of my itemized deductions, the total of those itemized greater than the standard? If yes, then I'm itemizing. If not, no. And this is where tax planning, even for W-2 employees, becomes really, really big. And I think it's especially relevant in our community where Sadaka plays a big role in our lives. And hey, the government wants to incentivize charitable behavior. So that deduction can be really, really helpful. Actually, plug for the donors fund. Oh yeah, Um, they love that. The donors fund and other donor advised funds allow you to do is that they allow you to what's called bunch your charity together. So think about it. Let's say Ellie's a guy who gives 10 grand a year to charity every single year. And you have a mortgage and you pay some state taxes and 
un- unfortunately, this is really, I mean, this is tough in New York as well as Maryland. State taxes are capped at 10000 per year. You cannot deduct more than $10,000 as an itemized deduction. Even if you're paying 15000 Exactly. Uh-huh. You're paying 100000 Didn't know that. That's set to sunset, but whatever. Okay, so let's take this situation. You like to give ten grand a year to charity. You have a mortgage. You pay some state and local taxes. But the sum of your mortgage interest and your state and local taxes plus your charity is let's say maybe about $25,000, $26,000 a year. So you're kind of on the fence of, am I going to do the standard for, let's say you're married, standard oh, like 27, 28,000 yeah. and the itemized. And really you might be better off just doing standard, but then all that charity, you're not, it's great that you gave it, but you're, you're not, not getting losing, any, any right. tax benefit. A donor advised fund is this wonderful tax planning strategy because there is no limit to how much you contribute to the donor advised fund. So what people will do when we- He's not a paid spokesman, by the way. (laughs) We didn't plan this, but go ahead. Well, I mean, it's such a smart, because not only does it help with the organization side, but you put your tax nerd hat on and you think to yourself, okay, this is what I can do. I can take the next three years of charitable giving $30,000 and I can stick it in my donor advised fund right now. Then I'm for sure itemizing. No question about it. A donor advised fund though, it itself is not the end charity that you want to give to, right? Maybe you give 10 grand a year because you don't want to give 30 grand upfront to the shul and to this organization. You want to give it out every single year per your commitments. The donor advised fund allows you to super fund, get all the charity in there, get the tax benefit, itemize like crazy. And then at your discretion, you can, as the name implies, advise the fund to give to this charity and to that charity. So that's a huge tax playing strategy that we've done with a lot of clients. I see a lot of people doing it where you give a lot of tzedakah. You're in this world right now where the standard deduction is pretty high. You live in New York. Your state taxes are capped at 10000 anyway. So what can I do to save on taxes? You give a lot of charity. Use a donor advised fund to bunch and you can kind of save money that way. The other great thing about the donor advised fund is the ability to give not just cash, but you can donate stock or other assets. So if you had a choice between donating $10,000 of cash, or let's say you have $10,000 worth of Amazon stock that maybe you only pay $2,000 for. So what the tax code allows you to do is you can donate that stock, put it in your donor advised fund, Take a $10,000 deduction for something that only cost you $2,000. That gain, since it's unrealized, you don't have to pay any taxes on that gain, and it's sitting in the charity then. So those are the two, That's you know, cool. we're getting into Meaning itemizing. if you cashed in that stock and then gave it to charity, you, you would pay taxes on it first, wow. and then you would have less than 10000 to give. Wow. Wow. We'll be right back to this week's episode, but first, a message from my friends at the Donors Fund. Picture this. You just closed a significant deal. You're thinking about giving back, right? Where do you put your charity dollars? And how could it be most effective? Welcome the Donors Fund, right? They represent a very unique intersection where you have finance on one side and charity giving on the other. So it's not just a place to donate. It's where your generosity can grow potentially before it reaches its final destination, right? So you did that lucrative deal. You have that urge to give tzedakah, but you're not exactly sure where to support just yet. So the Donors Fund has a solution. You can park those funds, not just where they're held, but they're actively growing potentially with the Donors Fund. So they launched an investment portal. I just took a look at it 
where you can discuss with them in-house investments. You can see the potential returns on your contributions. It could be a large sum. It could even be a small sum. You know, you, you don't have to have millions and millions of dollars to do this. So think about the donors fund as a high caliber bank or financial institution where you have a wealth manager who's strategically investing your funds and trying to help you get the most out of your charity so that they align perfectly with your financial goals, okay? Their platform allows your donations to be invested through various portfolios managed by leading financial institutions. That means your contributions can potentially increase in value tax-free, giving you the freedom to decide when and where they can make the most impact. I like that. Charity that grows when you're not sure exactly where to put it. So you're, in essence, running your charity like a business, fully focused, maximum impact potential. Visit thedonorsfund.org slash kosher money today. Explore how they can transform your giving, your success into a powerful legacy. Thedonorsfund.org slash kosher money. They're catering to every level of giving. So you'd be surprised, small, large, somewhere in between, they've got something for you. And now back to this week's episode. Okay, so let's talk about write-offs. There's a whole Seinfeld bit, you know, like, Jerry, write it off. <laughs> it's a um, write-off. That write-off is different than an itemized deduction, right? But let's give it an actual example. You have a home office, right? You're a W-2 employee. There's nothing you can do with that home office, right? Yeah, yeah. So under current law and pre-2018, there was a small opportunity. Right now, you're W-2. All the write-offs that your friends are bragging about at Kiddish that they're right. taking, okay, you're not really eligible to take any of them. So a write-off is a deduction. But what we were talking about, these itemized deductions, these apply whether you're an employee mm -hmm. or a business owner. It's the big three. Everyone should go through that exercise every year and figure out what makes most sense for them. When you start to talk more about the big write-offs, about people are doing for home office, for their car – those are applicable to business owners. And so business owners have a whole nother world of additional, what are called ordinary and necessary business expenses. Sure. So you get to write off, you know, you got a business, you have to buy camera, microphone, big screen over here. I have to do that to run my business. My cell phone. Cell phone, all those things. You can write them off through, through your Spit business. Spit out some more. Let's so, go. So, I want to hear right. more. Okay. So you've Excite got the- me. This is what I tell all of my business owner clients, okay? You've got yeah. the things that are straight up deductions. It's very obvious, right? The computer that you buy to work in, the insurance that you pay, all that stuff, very clear, black and white business expense. Then you have the gray area. The gray area are sections where these are like personal or expenses or things that you would be paying for anyway, mm. even if you weren't a business owner, but under the tax code, you can deduct them. So those big things are going to be, you highlighted one, the home office deduction is a big one, and then travel, so transportation. So if you drive, you have a car that you need for your business, there's a lot of tax planning that you can do with either whether you're leasing or buying, you can write off the cost of the lease, potentially what's called depreciation the value of the car, which is creating a big expense where you're writing off. People say, all right, you know, I wrote off my Tesla. Okay, what did you actually do? You bought a Tesla and then, and then you expense the cost of it over time through your business. So those are the big ones that I see for people who are in that gray area because you need a car 
either way, whether you're right. a W-2 employee or not. Right. So those are the big ones there. And then also retirement account contributions. It's a huge one. There's a lot of flexibility that people can do as business owners when it comes to funding retirement accounts. So those those really are like the big ones that, that people need to keep in mind when they're thinking about their tax write-offs as business owners. So let's get into the retirement side of things. I know we can discuss tax deductions, credits, itemizations, standard deductions, probably for another half hour. And I wouldn't be bored. Like after the half hour, it's not getting <laughs> bored. But this is um, so far very practical, insightful. Let's talk about it. So when I was at CNBC, I was there for a few years. They had a 401k, which in essence is a retirement account. They matched it. Meaning if I said to my employer, I want to allocate part of my paycheck into my retirement account, my 401k, they would say, okay, we'll match you up to 3%, let's say. So there was an incentive for me to put money towards my retirement account. When I left there, I went to a business that didn't offer a 401k. I was still a W-2 employee, but now I have tens of thousands of dollars sitting in a dormant 401k. So someone said, oh, you should convert that into an IRA. Elliot, what's an IRA? Okay. An IRA is nearly the exact same thing as that 401k, except instead of it being employer-sponsored, something benefit that you got because your employer set it up, it's something that you set up personally. So what I tell people, if it's a number acronym, that's an employer account, Ooh. 401k, 403B, 457. These are all just different areas of the code, but these are just- Not a 529, right? 529 is, 529 is part of the code, but that's okay. not for retirement. Okay. It's uh, for education. And there's some there's some stuff, especially- Yeah, we'll get, we'll, we'll get to the 529. So IRA, the I stands for individual. That's a personal retirement account. So because not everyone, as you highlighted, works for an employer that offers a retirement account that they can contribute to, an IRA or a Roth IRA are individual retirement accounts that you can open up and fund. And, you know, it's important to step back. Like, why do this? I feel like everyone, it's kind of like, you know, you go off to the real world and open up a bank account and contribute to your 401k. We're like, what the heck does that mean? Like, mm -hmm. why should I be doing that? So the reason why is, again, think about it. It's incentives. The government's trying to incentivize to save for the future, save for our retirement. How do they incentivize us? They let us have a tax deduction for the amount that we contribute to a 401k or to a traditional IRA. You can deduct that off of your taxes immediately. Talking so, numbers, what does that mean? So what that means is that, let's say that I make $100,000 a year and I'm going to put away, someone told me I should put 10% of my salary away for retirement, that's a good number. I'm gonna take $10,000, I'm gonna stick that in my 401k. So then when it comes time to file taxes and I'm on TurboTax, and I go in and I put my numbers in, instead of telling the government that I made $100,000 that I have to pay taxes on, I tell them that I only made $90,000 that I have to pay taxes on. That $10,000 goes away. It's still yours, and you'll pay taxes in the future on it, but you get a tax benefit today. And this is the way the retirement saving structure kind of works in the United States. And the way I tell people, think about buckets. You kind of have your money set aside in different buckets, and they're totally driven by their tax treatment. What we just went through is what's called tax deferred, where you're saying, hey, 
I'm not going to pay taxes today. I'm going to defer that into the future and I'll pay taxes on the back end. That's a traditional IRA. Traditional right. IRA or 401k. Then you have Roth, which I believe is named after it's a guy from a Flatbush. Senator, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that bucket I call the tax-free bucket or potentially tax-free. But what you're doing is you're foregoing the tax benefit today. You're saying, instead of putting Ellie putting $10,000 into his 401k and telling the government, hey, I only made 90 grand this year, you put $10,000 into a Roth account and you still report $100,000. So you're like, well, why would I do that? That doesn't make any sense. The reason why is because when you're doing it through a Roth account in the future, as long as you meet the requirements, you won't be subject to any tax in the future. So a good way for people to think about this, what it really comes down to is something that we don't know, which is your future tax rate. However, we can make an informed kind of balanced decision about it. As people are in their lower earning years, lower income tax brackets, use that Roth, fill up that Roth as much as you can, as early as possible. I tell all my students to get a summer job, get W-2, open and fund a Roth IRA with it. All you need is some earned income and a low enough taxable income, and you can contribute to a Roth IRA. Then as your income starts to creep up, you get into the higher tax brackets, that's when it might make sense to, hey, you know what, I should probably do traditional so that I can lock in that tax benefit in the future. Maybe in retirement, your income will be lower anyway, and you expect a lower tax bracket. When it comes to retirement savings, you either say, all right, I want the tax deduction up front, or I'll forego that and I'll get tax-free in the future. Very interesting. So how does someone set that up? Can they go online and in 2024, it's as easy as Googling and picking a brand name and just clicking a few buttons and doing that? Is that through an accountant, a wealth advisor? Who, who does that? And what's, for someone that has no clue, the difference between an IRA or an ARI, what should, what should they do? So again, if it's got numbers in front of it, it's coming through your employer. So 401k, 403b, it's employer. When you onboard at work, they're going to set up, you'll do your onboarding. IRA, the acronyms that have that, that have the letters in front of them. So those, it really is a simple, nowadays, thank God we live in an age where the access to, you know, to invest and really own our finances is so much easier than it used to be. It's as simple as going on, you know, typically I recommend going on one of the big brokerage platforms, Vanguard, Charles Schwab, Fidelity, or T. Rowe Price. Those are all very large, reputable institutions. And what you're going to do is you're going to create a username and password, and you're going to open up an account. The if same you're on Bear Stearns website. You're if in you're, the wrong place. Then you're in trouble. Yeah. Then you're in trouble. By the way, it's important as people are kind of DIYing a lot of these things. Yeah. Maybe talk about it. A, there's a lot of scammers out there. There's oh, a really? lot of bad players out there, and especially in the financial world who try to take advantage and, you know, kind of, yeah. you know, basically the bad I mean, guys. Don't just Google it. Go to an established person that can exactly credi that credi can credibly give you a link that would. Right. Be the real deal. Right, exactly. Or if you're going to DIY it, don't try to, you know, some people say, well, I heard if I go to this place, they're going to give me an $800 signup bonus. But like, do they have a website? Are they FDIC insured? Mm -hmm. Are they regulated by the federal government? So Vanguard, Schwab, these are all the big players out there that, that do have this. So that's where you'd go. You open up that account. 
You link it to your personal checking account, and then it's as simple as clicking a button to transfer money, whatever you are able to do and are able to do under law, because there are limits to how much you can contribute every year, depending on what the calendar year you're doing. The IRS sets certain limits, and then also based on your income level. So you do need to navigate those rules, and there's penalties if you screw that up. That's per person. You can't open six IRAs and give 7,000 across all six of them. Exactly. Got it. Exactly, per person. So you would go in and do that. And one thing, a little like a piece of investment advice, really more, a lot of people think, oh, I have an IRA. We don't give investment advice, but if someone hypothetically hypothetically wanted wanted some investment advice, they say, well, you know, okay, I listened to this podcast and I I have $5,000, I'm eligible. I stuck it in an IRA. Great, it's gonna grow to a million dollars in 50 years from now. No, it's not. It's just still sitting in cash. You Uh need to actually take the steps of investing it. And again, Vanguard, if you're gonna DIY it, especially young people, first getting started, I recommend going into low cost, target date, index fund uh, offering. All these platforms offer them now. They're very cheap. And the beauty of a target date fund is that you can really set it and forget it because it'll ask you how old you are. It'll put you in some fund that will adjust your investments over time to align with when you expect to need the money. But if you do nothing, that cash is just going to sit in cash and not grow. Naftali Horowitz, I think he was the one who said he can't believe how many times he looks at someone's IRA and it's invested into bonds or fully in cash. Right. And he says it's almost criminal that it just sits there and they've lost the investment slash compounding effect. How much can someone give nowadays roughly to the IRA annually? It's about 7,000? Yep. So for right now, we're in a funky time right now because we're before the April 15th deadline to file 2023 taxes. So most tax planning strategies have a December 31st use-by date, Mm -hmm. all right? They expire then. However, there are a couple that don't. Retirement contributions is one of those. Individual retirement contributions are one of those. So you have the maximum amount if you're 50 or under is 6,500 for the 2023 tax year, which means that you can contribute up to that much. If you're age 50 or older, you get another $1,000. You can put 6,500 or 7,500 if you're 50 or older by April 15th and take a deduction when you file 2023 taxes. Mm. That has been increased for 2024 up to 7,000. So then you can do it again. If you miss it, you can get the 2024 one. But that's how it works. And these numbers get adjusted every single year. I would imagine your recommendation is to not do that in one bulk sum when it's harder to come to that cash, but do it over the course of the year so that it's incremental and more digestible. Yep, exactly. So I think that's a really good idea from a personal planning standpoint. It's very helpful for people to do that. Also from an investment standpoint, a lot of people say, well, the market's really high. I don't know what to do. Just dollar cost average it right? Just when you're dollar cost averaging, you're saying, I don't care if the market's up, down, sideways, or backwards. I'm going to put a consistent amount of money in over the course of the year. Don't look at the market. Just just put the money away. Yeah. There's a saying that I love. I always tell people, imperfect action is better than perfect inaction, Mm. especially when it comes to taxes, because, hey, this is nerdy, boring, and a lot, but do something. If you know you're eligible for an IRA, you've got some money, you're learning here, it's going to save you on taxes, do something with it. Put it in there. I love that. I love that. I get requests from people, hey, do you have somebody I can speak to, a CPA? And I say, okay, here are a couple names. Or reach out to Living Smarter Jewish, they'll give you a couple names. And they go, okay, but I need to do a lot of research to make sure this is the best person. And I'm like, okay, 
but you're going to lose the next six months doing your research. I'm not saying you shouldn't find out that they're legitimate and credible, and you just lost six months. And they didn't even know an IRA existed until last week, and now they need the perfect solution, even a high-yield savings account, right? I'm like, hey, here's a link to a high-yield savings account. They're credible. Enjoy. And they go, but I found a website online that will give me 0.2% higher. Do you know anything about them? I said, bro, you didn't know a high-yield savings account from a low-yield savings account 10 minutes ago, and now you want the best of the best. Don't chase, like you said, perfect in action. Yep, exactly. The return, and what I tell people also, I'm like, all this energy and time that you're allocating to try to go from, oh, well, Elliot's was 4.5, and I found something that's 4.6. All that time, at the end of the day, that does not translate probably into a lot of dollars for you. But what you should be doing, channel that energy into like what you do to get that money in the first place. If you applied that energy somewhere else, you'd be much more successful. The same thing is true for taxes as well, is you're rarely going to have the exact perfect answer, especially when it comes to retirement contributions, because you don't know what the future holds, but do something. Oh, and I I do want to add to something you said, these scams, I see it with airlines. If you Google Delta Airline, the phone number that comes up, because these scammers are savvy, isn't always Delta's phone number. And you're calling, and and you said, hey, I'd like to change my flight, and they said, oh, no problem, but it's going to cost you $225. And you're thinking, oh, I thought it would cost me $500. $225? Yes, sure, no problem. Here's my credit card. And you get a swipe. It says Delta. And then you get to the airport and Delta says, we don't have you on that flight. And you say, I spoke to you on the phone. And they say, no, it was probably somebody else you spoke to. And using Google as your be-all, end-all to open up an IRA is dangerous, especially as you speak to, to scammers, because it's easy to set up a website yeah. in today's times. If you were, we were saying before, this just happened to me last tax season. So again, business owner, and they followed the advice, set up an LLC, you obtain what's called a tax ID number, an EIN, because you have to identify yourself for tax purposes. And you can do that online for free from the government. It's, it's straight up on the IRS website. If you Google, obtain an IRS EIN, and you look at the first four or five hits that come, these are all not the IRS website. They're sponsored ads. One of them was clicked on and the client, I still remember, was going through all the steps and was giving personal information. And then and then at the end, it said, enter your credit card information or, or bank info to pay for your EIN. But it's free. Anyone can go on the IRS website and get one. So again, whether it's on the phone or Google, there's a lot of stuff you got to be mindful of. And I think it it, it kind of runs in contrast with people saying, well, you know, uh, paralysis analysis, like, well, I don't want to screw it up, but you got to do something. So finding that balance is, is tough, but important. You got to be careful. When you open up an LLC, the amount of mail you get oh, yeah. that looks legit and you say, oh, I need a business authentication certificate. And it comes from some random address, a dead giveaways when it has a suite attached to it. But they're just people that are causing you to purchase something you don't need that might be free. The best advice I can give you is speak to a friend, right? Speak to somebody that has been there so you don't have to make the mistakes that so many people are making. Another item I wanted to talk to you about was an HSA, a health savings account. I'm only just realizing what it is. So tell me if I got this right. Over the course of the year, if you have health-related spending, 
such as a doctor's premium, a pharmacy visit, the government will allow you to deduct the amount you spend up to a certain amount from your total income and not have to pay taxes on it. Okay, drill me. Did I get it right? Or yeah, ish? Effectively, that's what happens. But the way that it happens is a little bit different. It is, we were discussing before about adjustments to income. So what you make, adjust it to get down to your AGI. So retirement account contributions. Also, plug for teachers. I know there's a lot of teachers, both my parents, I'm, I'm the child of two teachers, very, very important to me. There is a educator expense adjustment. So if you are a teacher, if you're joint, you can double up on this where you can take that right off your taxes. HSA contributions fall into the same category. So what you do is depending on the type of health insurance coverage that you have. So step number one, you have to be in what's called a high deductible plan. Not all health insurance plans are what are called HSA eligible. You have to be in the right type of health insurance plan. Once you're in that type of plan, the amount that you can contribute every year depends on your filing status, single or a family plan. Um, but once you identify that, then what you do is you take money, you transfer it into the HSA account, okay? And that lowers your taxes. So if I made 100 and I put, I think $8,300 is the cap for a family, then I take that off my taxes. So I've saved money there. Then I can just take money out. And most HSA accounts, they literally issue you a debit card and you can just swipe that to pay for eligible qualifying medical expenses. And that's a great strategy for people. I want to share something really, really important about HSAs because in my nerdy head, HSAs are a superhero investment account because there's a very interesting retirement saving strategy that you can use for an HSA. So before we discuss that you have traditional and Roth and you are either going to take the tax benefit today or you're going to get tax-free in the future, but at some point, Uncle Sam's getting their taxes. An HSA account is unique because the contributions that you make are a deduction to your taxes right now. Unlike some other healthcare-related accounts that you have to exhaust by the end of the year, you can leave your HSA money in there, and you don't have to use it to pay for your current medical expenses. At any time in the future, you can take it out, and you can even use it to reimburse yourself for the expenses that you might have had years ago, and you take it out tax-free. So what has happened here is that you've gotten the best of both worlds. You got a tax write-off at the beginning, and then you let that money grow and grow, and then you can take it out as you need it in the future tax-free. And most HSA plans now, at least the ones that I see, they allow you to invest that money. So a great strategy for people is to fund your HSA, but try to pay for medical expenses out of your regular checking account and invest the HSA balance, because then you're getting not just the benefits of a traditional IRA and the benefits of a Roth IRA, you're getting the benefits of both. Dependent care credit, what is that? So the dependent care credit is a credit related to the fact that the government recognizes, and again, incentives here, incentivizes people to go out and work and be productive, contributing members to society and help grow the economy. But the government also realizes that we have kids, dependents, other humans in this world that are relying on us and need our care and that can pull us away from the ability to work. So the dependent care credit is a tax credit that provides a benefit to people where the person who is responsible or claiming that dependent 
is generating earned income. And what you get to do is you get to take a credit equal to a certain percentage of the expenses that you incur so that you can go to work and that your dependents are being looked after. Is that school? Is that like tuition? uh, I wish it was tuition. (laughs) There's also a cap on how much you can do per child, Uh but the biggies are going to be summer camp, not sleepaway camp though. So summer day camp, preschool. So for your younger children, anything up until kindergarten, preschool, aftercare, daycare activities. A lot of times people enroll in after school programs, that type of stuff. If it is, if you can get a tax ID and you're paying these expenses, uh, so that someone can watch your kids so that you can go work, you can get a dependent care credit. Is that different than a child tax credit? It is different. So they're both the same in the sense that the government created these credits, appreciating the fact that like kids ain't cheap, right? right. So the dependent care credit, we we discussed that's there because you got to go work and we want to create an incentive for that and, and, and be helpful. The child tax credit is much more simpler. It's basically like, hey, Diapers are expensive, right? So when you have a child or you have someone who qualifies as a dependent living in your home, there is just a certain dollar amount that you can get um, as a credit. And again, a credit means that it is being, after your taxes have been calculated, you're reducing your tax bill by the amount of that credit. So the child tax credit exists for every year that you have a qualifying dependent. The amount varies depending on the age of the child as well as your income. It does for high income people, it does start to phase out. Mm. That's kind of like, it's free money. It's not free because right. I'm sure that money is going to pay for your kid, but is uh, that's the way the child tax credit works. A brief pause to tell you about Kol Chabad, an amazing group of people based in Israel and around the world making a big difference to the people in Israel. After the horrific attacks on October 7th, Kol Chabad jumped in and literally saved the day. They gave out food cards to families who were hit very hard by the attacks. Families of hostages received an extra card holding on to hope for their loved ones. And now we're seeing some hostages come back, use those Kola Chabad cards for groceries. It's real, real need, and they need people like us to support. So they're helping the soldiers, the families, food cards. It's our job to help them help our friends and family in Israel. and. For those in Beersheba, they have a new supermarket open where you can use Kol Chabad's food cards. Specific, you can't even walk in if you don't have the Kol Chabad food card, but they're giving them out. So it's it's a special dedicated supermarket. They're doing things. They're not just playing the old playbook. They realize times are changing and they're there for people. So they need our help, right? They're doing great work. We have to do our great work to help support them. Visit kolchabad.org slash kosher money. Give what you can. It could be $18, $36, $1,800. The key is to give, give, give. The link's in the show notes. Visit, click around the website. You'll learn a lot. They really, really do a lot. Clothing, shelter, um, support, right? People don't have who to talk to. They're there. They have centers all across from the north to the south. Really proud to be a partner with them in this. So join us. Give to Kol Chabad. Click the link in the show notes while you're listening to this wonderful episode of Kosher Money. Now back to this week's episode. Let's talk about 529 plans, saving for college, seminary, an education savings account. What What is it exactly? How much can you give towards it? And is this something that you think is maybe underutilized in 
Jewish circles. So 529 account has similar characteristics to the retirement accounts that we were discussing before, but the intent, again, it's all about government intent. So that code section 529 is all about incentivizing people to pay for their child's future education. And historically, it's been their higher education. So post high school, college, etc. And so the way the account works is you open it up and you make contributions. And at the federal level, on your U.S. federal taxes, you don't get any write-off for that. But the money grows tax-free. And then in the future, as long as you take it out for qualifying education expenses, you don't have to worry about paying taxes on it. So you open up the 529 account. You own it. The parent maybe, say, in this case, owns it. They name a beneficiary, a child, a nephew, niece. You can really name anyone. You want to open one up for me? I might go back to school, get get that PhD, oh, and I'll fund it by the Ellie Langer. It doesn't have to be a relative. It doesn't have to be a relative. Yeah, so you can open that up. The beneficiary is someone else. You make those contributions, grows tax-free, and you use it. So you don't really get a lot of benefit up front at the federal level. Most states, New York included, New Jersey, Maryland, I know for sure, they allow you to take a modest typically modest state tax deduction on the contributions that you make. So that saves you a little bit on your state taxes. And then the same rule for state taxes, it grows tax-free, you use it for the education expenses, and you can take it out tax-free. So there are pros and cons to the 529. And I'm a little torn, honestly, when it comes to how beneficial it is and how all-in people should go with 529s. Because the problem is, we don't know the future. Let's say that you're not going to have those qualifying education expenses and the money's sitting there. So you're limited in your ability to get that money out without paying taxes and incurring a penalty. The government actually penalizes you. So there are a couple strategies. Maybe that that's you why can, it's not so common in I, Jewish circles. I, I think that's why. I think that's why. But there like is- college, outside of Jewish circles, college is a core part of their fabric, yeah. whereas for us- we don't know, does the kid want to pursue a higher education in in a college or a seminary, or maybe they want to go straight to work? Exactly, right? exactly, because of that, yeah. One thing, so like I typically tell people, take a look at doing Roth IRAs, or if your income is too high, and this might be the case as you're getting older and income's going up, kids are getting older, backdoor Roth IRAs, it's basically, it's just a it's just a legal loophole to fund a Roth IRA when your income is too high. But I find it becoming more and more applicable with clients as they are kind of getting up and their income's getting up there because Roth IRAs have pretty flexible uh, withdrawal capabilities um, on the amount that you put in there. So you can look at that for education. And so really I tell people to take like a balanced approach with 529s. One thing is currently while 529s were originally intended just for college and higher education, currently you can take out up to $10,000 a year from a 529 account and use it to pay for private school tuition K through 12. In Maryland, the rules work pretty nicely for this. You can get your Maryland state tax deduction, take it out and not have any issues. I believe in, I, I don't know, but I know there are definitely states, I think New York might be a state where if you do that strategy, New York gave you a deduction when you put it in. But if the reason why you're taking it out is for K through 12 tuition as opposed to college, you have to add back 
the deduction. So you kind of lose oh, the benefit. So it. someone should fact check me and I'll fact check myself, maybe put it in the comments. I think New York, it could be a little bit of an issue. I think at the end of the day, 529s are great and they're a tool to be used, but I wouldn't say fully fund them and look to maximize them out before you've already considered maxing out retirement accounts because retirement accounts have a lot more flexibility in what you can use them for. Are there any tax deductions related to life events, a wedding, a bar mitzvah, or is that just pie in the sky? Nothing like that exists. Yeah. So there's not really a lot of tax deductions that you can get for like the simplest that you might be making, the life milestones, mm -hmm. the things that you're going to have. But it shouldn't be lost on people. A lot of what we've been discussing about is how you save and the way you go about saving for these life milestones, right? So if you know you've got a bar mitzvah coming up in 10, 11 years, hopefully you've opened up an investment account where you're not just saving cash, but you're investing it so that it'll grow a little bit. Utilizing a Roth IRA, I have found to be a wonderful tool for people who want to balance saving for the way long-term, but realizing, especially in our community, that we're going to be hit hard with big expenses well before the age of 59 and a half, which is that threshold for mm -hmm. taking out from retirement. So using the type of account that you use to save for these things is very, very important from a tax standpoint because you can contribute into the Roth, start triggering that tax-free growth. And then the rules are such that you can take out, since you didn't take a tax deduction on the amount that you put into the Roth IRA, you can take that money out at any time, tax and penalty free. So it also addresses kind of the behavioral discipline that you need, because once it's in that Roth, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, and it's there, and you know it's going to be for the bar mitzvah in 10 years. So the form of account is really what I think the main tax planning strategy when it comes to simchas are. The second part of that is within the investment world, but then it's choosing, okay, well, which investments should I be picking up on. So there's a whole world of capital gains taxes and people talk, well, I don't want to sell my stock because I'll have to pay a lot of taxes on it. And there's some nuance to how you choose to pick the investments based on their tax preferences. So very like basic, basic common sense advice that might make sense in a regular brokerage account versus a Roth or an IRA account, a tax deferred or tax free account. Um, the income that's generated every single year, the dividends and interest that you get in a taxable account, you're going to pay taxes on it in that year, as opposed to the retirement accounts where you won't. So as people are saving up for things that might occur in the next 5, 10, 15 years, and they might be utilizing a brokerage account, look at things. And because your time horizon isn't so long, you might actually have some bonds in there as opposed to just being all in stocks. Look at things like U.S. Treasury bonds or what are called municipal bonds because the government, again, it's all about incentives. The government has to borrow money, so they issue bonds and they want you to buy those bonds. So they give you tax preferences on the interest that you earn from that. So that's something to think about. Again, I would say you don't get a lot of write-offs per se, but the way what's more important is the way you save up for those events. So you're filing taxes for not just individuals, but businesses as well within your firm. What makes a good organized person slash business? Is it meticulous record keeping, receipts? Are there people that do it way better than others? And what trends do you see in those who are doing it successfully? 
I preached this mantra. I learned this in school when I was learning about the, how the U.S. was formed and government, separation of church and state. When you've got your business, when you start your own business, it's it can be very hard at first, especially when you're just when you're frazzled and everything's on fire and you're just like, oh, just trying to survive, just trying to stay above water and pay your bills. Separating, financially separating the personal cash management of your life, personal checking, personal credit cards against the business cash management of your life is critical. So if you're going to do nothing else and tell people you have to open up a separate account. And here's the thing. If you form an LLC and get that tax ID, you can open up a business checking. There's plenty of free business checking options out there. Your own personal bank might offer one and you can just link them together. But what is good practice and good in the eyes of the IRS is to show that separation between business and personal checking. So that's why I tell everyone off the bat, you need to do that. Even if you don't form an LLC and you're just doing this as a sole proprietor and you didn't get a tax ID and you don't want to open up a business checking, just open up a separate personal checking account. Just keep it separate. That's my first piece of advice. It's critical. The earlier you do that, the better it's going to be because the longer you kick that can down the road and your business gets bigger and more complicated, the harder it's going to be to be tax A, tax compliant, doing it right, and B, what we really care about is tax planning because if I don't understand like what's going on in your business, I can't efficiently help you plan. Before we conclude, the final question I have as it relates to taxes is what's it like to be audited? Have you had exposure to people that have been audited? What's the process and what should people keep in mind to avoid an audit? Being audited, it's it's scary. It's a A U D I T. It's not a four letter word. Okay, okay, close enough. It's a tough process, but basically, if you think about it, what it is is the government has they process all these returns and they'll flag some. And they'll be like, something looks fishy over there. So, good practice is don't be fishy in the first place. Everything we discussed, whether you call it a tax write off, a tax credit, an itemized deduction, it's all legal within the letter of the law. You just have to implement it. Make sure you're implementing it in a legal way. But what can give rise to this is going to be kind of something that looks fishy on your tax return. So massive deductions against correspondingly not such high income. There are things like very aggressive home office deductions. If you're saying, well, my personal home that I raise my family in is 95% allocated towards my business, that's going to be a little funny. So there are things that you know, you need to be mindful because you're doing something that's inherently legal, but you might not be doing it in such a legal way. So you typically, when you're going to get audited, there's like a few different ways that they do it. The There's kind of the letter, there's the mail correspondence. Also, speaking of scammers, the IRS will never call you first to tell you that you're being audited, but scammers will. It will always come in the form of a letter from the IRS. So disregard anyone that calls you and tries to scare you about that. Um, you'll get a letter. Sometimes an audit is handled with no personal interaction. They'll say, hey, we saw your return. You, can you please provide some support for this deduction or that piece of income? You have it from your records. You send it off. You respond. Hopefully they close it. The other one is there could be an, a, an audit where you're required to come into an IRS office locally where you live, 
Someone might interview you, ask you some questions to substantiate and understand what happened. And then you also might have a more comprehensive field audit where an agent's going to actually come to your place of work or to your house, and they're really going to analyze things. So you have this sliding scale of how in the weeds the auditor is going to get, but an audit is an audit. A lot of people ask me, they say, I give like five grand to charity. Do I really have to show you every single receipt? I'm like, I believe you, okay? But if the IRS comes knocking, at the end of the day, if that's something they're gonna question, they're not gonna take your word for it. They're gonna wanna see the support. So when it comes to keeping your tax record, since this audit risk does exist and it can happen either very just through the mail or someone might come knocking at your door, you wanna keep track of all of your records. And sometimes people ask me, they're like, how long? So at a minimum for pretty much everything, three years. That's the good kind of general rule. Keep everything for three years. If you're working with an accountant, I mean, we hold on to everything forever. So we'll always have electronic records of everything. If you never file a tax return or if you commit fraud, so then there's no limit to when they can come after you, right? Because if you're committing a criminal act, they can come after you. If you never filed, then there's no three-year, what's called statute of limitations that they can go after for you. So definitely file, even if you're, well, I don't need to file. I always get a refund. I don't have a complicated situation. File your tax return in order to kind of establish that three-year period. Keep your documentation for three years. And I can say from experience with clients that have gone through this or my own dealings with the IRS, even as a seasoned CPA, it's daunting. It is stressful. But breathe and realize that this is coming at you. No one is coming to your house to arrest you and throw you in jail. It's coming from just you've been flagged. There's questions. And we can achieve a resolution. You can achieve a resolution. If you were cheating, then not. But if you're operating within the letter of the law, there's no reason to think that the audit cannot be resolved in a reasonable manner. People are going to ask me, what does Elliot Pepper do day to day? So you have a firm. Are you helping individuals, businesses? Um, what verticals are you playing in? Yeah. Um, so uh, at our firm, we primarily focus on providing both tax and personal financial planning services to individuals, families, and a particular niche, I would say, with small business owners, where all this stuff we're talking about, the complexities, the S-corp, all that stuff, where there's a need for comprehensive tax planning, but also an importance to step back and be like, hey, how am I going to plan for my family, my retirement, things like that? So that's my day-to-day. I'm incredibly passionate about kind of that crossroads of my technical skill set of being a huge tax nerd, but like the human side of all this where like, I just love working with people. I love nice. talking with people. Nice. So that's so that's what we do down in Baltimore. Northbrook Financial? Northbrook Financial. Got it. What's the website? Website's northbrookfinancial.com. Nice. I'm active on LinkedIn as well. Okay. Look them up. Elliot Pepper. Last question. Books. What would you recommend people... You know, you teach, students come over to you, you want to get them up to speed, maybe a 101 book, 102. It doesn't have to be finance related, but is there a tax related book? What what comes to mind that you would want to share with people? I would not recommend any of the textbooks that I had in school. Um, mm-hmm. I would say this is not a tax book per se, but I do have to just frankly plug it. I think it's a phenomenal book, The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Love it. Where he it, said he'll come on to the podcast. But he's just a bit busy in the beginning of the year. I have it next to my bed. Awesome. Yes. As, it's so good. As it should be. It's phenomenal. It helps you think through. I think a lot of the stresses we were talking about, you know, perfect, imperfect action to perfect inaction. So, you know, all of that stuff, 
he speaks to you very well. And you can kind of transpose that into your, okay, I heard all this stuff. Like, okay, I got to adjust my income deductions. He helps you think through the behavioral psychological side of things of how you can apply that. I find that to be a really, really helpful book for people to read. The problem with tax related books is that the tax code is extremely dense and it's always changing. So if someone wants to contact you, what's the what's the best way? Should they go to the website, Northbrook? Yeah, absolutely. Go to northbrookfinancial.com and there's a contact us link. You send a note, it'll come straight to my inbox um, and we can coordinate from there. Amazing. So this has been super insightful, one of our longer episodes, but I think I think taxes is not, you know, a reel. Like you said, people love sharing those 60 second reels without nuance. And then the CPAs get it and they're like, oh my gosh, this is there's a lot more to the story than just writing off your home as a tax deduction. So um, thank you so much for joining yeah. us. Thank you. Came in special. Wednesday night, came to listen to a CPA rant about taxes for yeah. over an hour. That's impressive, Ellie. Yeah. Yaakov has a, a special guest. We're not going to reveal any names just yet. Um, but thank you so much for coming down to the studio, sharing your insights. Anyone has follow-up questions, head to northbrookfinancial.com. Elliot's waiting, him and his team. And really, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. It's amazing. great to be here. Thanks for listening to another amazing episode of Kosher Money. I'm your host, Ellie Langer. But if you did not know that after 90 minutes, shame on you. Thank you to our sponsors. We got Twillery. If you need sharp-looking clothing at an affordable price, durable, professional, feel-good clothing, check out twillery.com slash koshermoney. If you are giving charity, you need to look up the Donors Fund. They have everything you'll need in 2024 and beyond to make charity awesome, okay? Thedonorsfund.org slash koshermoney. And of course, Kolel. Chabad. Kolachabad.org slash kosher money. You got a lot of kosher money. Give your charity to an amazing place. You could probably find them on the donors fund. So one-stop shop and help the people of Israel. It goes a long way in terms of feeding the needy, shelter, clothing. They're doing a lot of great things. Check them out. And thank you to our friends at Living Smarter Jewish, livingsmarterjewish.org a financial resource for people in need. If you need guidance, get out of debt, credit scores, uh, budgeting, you don't know where to turn, turn to them, okay? livingsmarterjewish.org, links in the show notes for them and all of our sponsors. Thank you for listening. We are approaching episode 70. Fantastic few episodes coming up. Excited about it. We sat down with the great... Jonasson Schwartz, who had a lot of interesting things to say, hoping to release that in a couple of weeks. We're also doing an episode on trusting in God and how that plays into our everyday lives in a tangible way that helps take some of the stress off. So that's going to be interesting. And we got some stuff up our sleeves. Don't want to give too much away. Check out our other podcasts on our YouTube channel, Living L'Chaim. We got Inspiration for the Nation. We have That's an Issue. There are some kids content being created. You can check that out. Zevi and Zadie, The Adventures of Zevi and Zadie. That's available on all podcast streaming platforms. Coming out with some more episodes on that front. We are 
just getting warmed up. We have a hotline. So if you know anybody that wants to listen, but doesn't have access to the internet, there's a US number, an Israel number. Um, check out the show notes, send them the phone number. Hundreds of thousands of people are calling in just to the number every year. How amazing is that? Really cool. Great work by Yaakov. And now it's time for a tip. Okay. You've listened to probably one of our longest episodes. You deserve something good, right? Hmm. A tip, eh? Okay, you want a tip. So AI is the hottest thing in tech, in people's lives, artificial intelligence. But AI can be a loaded word, right? Where do you turn? What is AI? How do people get the most out of it. So I started a WhatsApp group. It has a little over 900 people now. It's called AI Tips and Tricks. I'm not going to put the link in the show notes, but if you want access to it, email me, okay? E-L, those are my initials, at harvestingmedia.com. E-L at harvestingmedia.com. Send me an email. I'll send you a link to the WhatsApp. I think the WhatsApp group closes out when there's 1,024 people in it or so. So, In that group, we share tools and tricks and tips that everyday people can get for free out of AI. There's hundreds and hundreds of tools being created every week, but not every one of them are good. Most of them aren't all that great, but some of them are really helpful and they can help your business. They can help you. I got a whole list of different tools that I've been sharing over the last year. So hopefully that's helpful. Thank you for listening. I'm Ellie Langer. Looking forward to seeing you next time, right here, same place, working on a new studio. So stay tuned. Peace. Living Lechaim.